Thanks very much, Joe. Evening, everybody. Three thousand times. Do you think that sounds a lot, or not many? It doesn't sound a lot, does it really? Uh, in one sense, it's going to be over before we know it. So we should make the most of every Sunday, shouldn't we? Um, well, hopefully you've got an outline, and um, on the top it says uh, part five of how to love your church, what happens in church, as Joe's already uh, said. And I want to introduce our topic uh, this evening by talking for a moment about the importance of faith. I think faith is one of those uh, words that is very much misunderstood uh, in Christian vocabulary. And the misunderstanding often goes like this. Perhaps you've had a, a friend who is not a Christian and has looked at your life and they've said rather wistfully, um, I wish I had your faith. Anybody had that kind of conversation? Um, or I envy your faith or something like that. The assumption behind it is this idea that faith is a kind of a quality that some have and others don't have. Uh, something which enables certain people to believe and trust in what ordinary rational people and healthily sceptical people don't believe in. So uh, I had a, a, a good example of this a few years ago when I used to work in an insurance company. That's what I did before I went to Bible college, worked for a, an insurance company. And uh, you know what insurance companies do? They take on risks and they insure things. And uh, some insurance companies are kind of happy to take on lots of risk and some are kind of a bit more conservative. And we were at the more conservative end. And um, a risk came in, a proposition came in, which was uh, the sort of thing that our company would would turned down uh, very quickly. It was something uh, like a kind of a, you know, a firework factory at the end of a runway in Belfast. And this is in the, in the 1990s at the time of the, everything was blowing up, you know. And it was the sort of thing that we just wouldn't be interested in because it was too risky. And the underwriter that I sat next to uh, passed it across my desk and she said, Danny, why don't you insure it? Because you've got faith. <laughs> and you can see what she was saying. She knew I was a Christian. She knew I had this thing called faith. So in other words, you're a bit gullible. You can take these things on, see? But it's a mistake because actually we all have faith and we exercise faith all the time. This evening, we've all come into this building and we've sat down on those pews. Uh, the decision we took to do that was based on, I guess, a kind of unconscious rational assumption or calculation that the pew was going to hold us based on past experience and a little bit of kind of, you know, unconscious physics and that kind of thing. Um, later, when we have dinner, we're going to exercise faith that the cooks knew what they were doing and were not trying to poison us. And again, there's a sort of unconscious rational exercise of faith. In other words, faith is really another word for trust or belief, or dependence. And faith is everywhere. We are exercising faith all the time. And therefore, what matters is not that we have faith. We all have faith. We all exercise faith in all sorts of things all the time. And neither does it matter whether we have a lot of faith or a little faith. All of that is irrelevant. What matters is what we have faith in. So if the word faith has been sort of devalued, Substitute it with the word dependence. What is it that we are depending on? What is it that we are trusting on? And the Bible teaches us that it's better to have a little bit of faith in the right thing than a lot of faith in the wrong thing. To see the importance of this, 
Remember that in the New Testament, Christians are rarely called Christians. In fact, I think only three times they're called Christians. Do you know what the most common word for Christians is? Anybody in the New Testament? There's all sorts of words, brothers, sisters, believers, um, is the most common word. A Christian is a believer. That seems to be the sort of most fundamental definition of a Christian in the New Testament. Not a good person, not a religious person, not a gullible person, but somebody who believes, somebody who has put their faith, trust in a particular thing. What is, therefore, the word for the non-Christian? Anybody? An unbeliever, a non-believer, somebody who has not put their faith in that particular thing. So not a bad person, not an irreligious person. You can be a very religious person, but in New Testament terms, be an unbeliever. The big difference is that one group of people have put their trust, their confidence in a particular thing, and another group of people have not. Which, of course, raises the question, what is that thing? What is the thing that we are meant to have trust in and dependence on? What is it that makes you a believer or an unbeliever? Is it God? Is it heaven? Is it some kind of theological statement? Well, let's try and answer this by looking at Genesis chapter 15 and then Romans 10. So if you could open your Bibles at Genesis 15, and you might, if you like, uh, flip ahead and put a finger in Romans 10. But Genesis 15, first of all. And I'll just read the first six verses and just see if you can sort of um, observe what is going on here in terms of faith. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I'm your great shield. Sorry, I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, You've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. So God initiates a conversation with this man, Abraham. He gives him a promise that he's going to have many descendants. But the promise is very, very hard for Abraham to believe because he's an old man. His wife is old, far too old to have children. God gives him a promise that is evidently out of reach, very hard to believe. And so look at verse 6. Look at it very carefully. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The right response to the word of God is belief, trust, or faith. Taking God at his word, treating God's words as you would treat God, is what brings you into a right relationship with God. So here is a very important little um, passage in the Bible that is teaching us what it means to relate to God rightly. Abraham Here's the word of God. It's a word of promise. It's a word that looks to the future. It's the word that he can't verify by his eyes or his own experience. He has to actually trust God, and he believes it. And God says, well, that belief constitutes righteousness. That is how you get right with God. 
Now, this is unique to Christianity. People talk about other faiths. So Prince Charles, when he becomes monarch, wants to be known as the defender of faith rather than the defender of the faith. As if faith were common to all religions. But no, this kind of faith is unique to Christianity. If you had a panel of people representing the world's religions and you said to them, how can, you, how can I come to know your God? You'd get a range of answers. The Muslim would talk about submission to Allah. The Jew might talk about obedience to the law of Moses. The Roman Catholic might talk about following the traditions of the church. The Hindu would probably tell you to go and do something, like washing the Ganges or something. The Buddhist might tell you to look inside yourself. But the Christian, only the Christian would say, you ought to hear the word of God and believe it. Well, let's see this now in Romans 10. Really enjoying the bird that is accompanying me behind. It sounds like it's uh, in the building, doesn't it? But it's um, just a sign that spring is in the air. Okay, everybody got Romans 10? Can you hear it or is it just me? You can hear it. That's a relief. Because <laughs> when you hear birds and no one else hears them, that is a worrying sign. Romans 10, verse 5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. But if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is really exactly the same thing that we saw in Genesis 15, but now applied it to the gospel, to the New Testament. So the promise that Abraham believed was the promise of many descendants, the promise of land, people, and blessing, and so on. The promise now is the promise of the gospel. And Paul is explaining that believing that promise is how you get saved, how you get righteousness with God. And then he goes on to explain that this is how God is going to gather his people from the ends of the earth. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, what has all this got to do with church? Well, We'll see that it's got a great deal to do with church. We're really now getting down to the sort of fundamentals of what the church is. Because the way you think about church and the way you sort of construct your doctrine of church is related to the way you think about relationship with God and how we relate to God. See, God is invisible, isn't he? So how do we relate to an invisible God? How do we get into that relationship? This is a question that has sort of been rumbling on throughout church history, throughout the history of philosophy. How do we, as creatures, access the God of creation? Um, 
if you think about the, the line diagram that we talked about MIC, how do we get over the line or how does God come down to us over the line so that we might have a relationship with him? The answer to that question, and this is the point of this talk, the answer to that question will determine your doctrine of church. And so what I want to do now is just think with you for three alternatives that have been answers to this question through history. Now this, this is a bit we're going to deal with some kind of big, big-ish concepts. Um, but I'm talking to a bunch of university scholars, aren't I, mostly? So this should be dead easy uh, to do. And even if it isn't easy, uh, that shouldn't be a surprise because we're dealing with God. But the basic point is we're going we're gonna to do some thinking that's going to stretch us a little bit. And the result of that, that we should be uber clear about the right answer. So three wrong answers will help us see the right answer. Okay, how does God relate to man? Firstly, the bridge. And I've got some little diagrams uh, just to help us picture this. The idea is that the line between us is between heaven and earth. How do we come to experience divine reality in our life? And one answer that has been given throughout church history is that the universe has been set up in such a way that God relates to us through things. By the way, nothing's going to happen with this. There's no little animation, so don't. <laughs> everyone's looking like they're expecting something. That's it. It's just the bridge. Um, the idea is that God has set up the universe so that we link heaven and earth through things. Now, behind this idea is the ancient Greek philosophy that the universe is a double-decker kind of idea. Not the line diagram between creator and creature, but heaven and earth, spiritual and physical. Listen to Seneca, for example, who said that the body is a bad thing. He said the soul regards the body, since it is a burden which must be borne, not as a thing to love, but as a thing to overcome. And when the soul is about to depart the body, the soul regards the body as being of no more concern to itself than the afterbirth to a child just born. See, your body is your placenta. It's something to throw off because what really matters is your soul getting to heaven. So this kind of double-decker Greek thinking where the stuff of reality, the stuff that really matters is up there in heaven on the top deck of the bus. We live down here on the bottom deck but life was all about getting to the top deck in the realm of the spirit. Now, if that's the way the universe is built, then we need a bridge to get us into contact with God. Or we need a bridge for God to get us to get grace down to us here on earth. Now, the answer that was come up with is the idea of the sacrament. Sacrament just means sign. And the idea is that through things... God links heaven and earth together. So medieval Catholicism, there were seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, ordination, communion, marriage, penance, extreme unction. So you've seen those films, you know, the mafia films. The mafia's shot somebody, they're on the deathbed, and they run and get a priest. What are they getting the priest for? Well, they might be confessing their sins, or they might be asking the priest to come and give them uh, extreme unction, which is the last sacrament before somebody dies. I remember going to Santiago de Compostela. Anyone been been there? Santiago de Compostela, yeah? So the place where people do this pilgrimage in Spain. 
And it's this kind of big cathedral. I remember as a, as a young boy standing there, this is before I became a Christian, um, watching all these people enter the cathedral and they walked through the cathedral and they kissed a column, just like one of these pillars here, a bit more grand. But hundreds and hundreds of people, and they'd walked from all over Europe. Some of them had walked from Paris, some of them had walked from Milan, some of them had walked from London, obviously involving a boat at that point. Um, but they'd pilgrimaged all the way to this place in Spain, entered this building, and they were kissing a column. That's sacramentalism. That things connect you to God. Eating bread and wine, having oil put on you, touching the bones of a dead saint, kissing a column, entering a particular church building. Now, that basic view might sound uh, really strange to us, but actually that kind of idea persists, doesn't it? So think uh, about the Lord's Supper, for example, bread and wine. What do you make of the Lord's Supper? What do we think about it? What are we doing when we take the bread and wine? Are we just remembering Jesus' blood, or, or is there more going on when you take the bread and wine? Is God somehow communicating things to you? Uh, think about the design and architecture of church buildings. Many church buildings are not like this. Many church buildings have a particular shape that bring you into a kind of a holy place that is more holy than, than other places. Think about what the church leaders wear. If you go to the priory, um, you will not see a man standing in a blue jumper and jeans. You'll see a person, uh, in fact, actually, it's a woman at the moment, but you'll see a person dressed in this beautiful, lavish kind of purple dress with a sort of funny hat on. And these are the kind of uh, modern examples of sacramentalism. Um, I'm just what, just dipped into a, a documentary on the BBC iPlayer at the moment about Hillsong. Anybody seen that? Yeah, um, is it worth watching? Yeah, so Hillsong documentary. Um, very interesting how to think through how that kind of idea is coming across in a, in a thing like Hillsong, where the, the 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 atmosphere and the fireworks and the music and the the kind of the the um, pyrotechnics and everything is actually bringing us into the presence of God. It's just another form of sacramentalism, I think. So here's the first way of connecting to God. If you want blessing, if you want to know God, you've got to touch something, do something, say some special words, enter a special building, kneel into, in a special position, have contact with special people. This is sacramentalism, the bridge between heaven and earth. So what does that make of the doctrine of church? Well, church is where you go to get connected with God. You come into a special building. You uh, relate to special people who are wearing funny clothes or singing special songs. That is sacramentalism. Secondly, the ladder. See, if the universe is constructed in this kind of double-decker way where heaven is up there and earth is down here and we've got to somehow get up to heaven, then how do you actually do that? Well, another way the medieval church came up with is with a kind of a hierarchy. And there's the, uh, the kind of uh, the ladder idea. Um, they're not meant to be amusing, those little cartoons, but, you know, the, the, the idea is that you sort of, you've got God at the top and then God, under God is Christ, and under Christ is Mary, and under Mary are the saints and the angels and the priests and the sacraments and the sinners, and prayer turns up the same way. And so if you're a human being... How do you get to God? Well, you go and you talk to the bottom rung of the ladder and you work your way up the chain. And if you talk to your Catholic friends, you'll be amazed 
uh, how this idea still persists. Many, many Catholics do not pray directly to God the Father. They pray uh, to the saints who are praying to Mary, who is praying to Jesus, who is praying to God. What does this do to the doctrine of church? Well, it's a similar kind of idea to the first one, but you come and you talk to somebody, namely the priest, who is the sort of the, the closest rung of the ladder to you. Third idea is a little bit different, and this came out of uh, the early church when the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian, and suddenly the whole Roman Empire was Christian. Uh, but what made a church a church then was that you were properly connected, or so legally connected, to the head in Rome. Uh, this idea comes out of a misreading of Matthew 16, where Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, from that idea came the idea of papal succession, that the bishop of Rome, the pope, was a descendant of Peter, and Peter had the keys, and he passes the keys on to the pope. And so, to be a, a church, you have to be connected to the church in Rome. What does this make of the doctrine of church? Well, it's a special place where you go and get the sacraments, but is specially led by special people, and it's connected. And again, this idea sort of persists a little bit in our, in our world, both inside Roman Catholicism and outside. Just a little example, I remember uh, a few years ago, I went to do some RE lessons or some assemblies at a, a local school, um, and because we were sort of an independent church, people didn't quite know what to, uh, um, to make of us, um, and they wanted to know, did we have any connection to the real church? What do you mean the real church? Well, do you, are you connected to the Church of England? Uh, that was the question, and that was the thing that kind of gave them confidence. And so, you know, I, I, there's, there, I think it came down to, do I have reverend in front of my name? Well, the truth of the matter is anybody can put reverend in front of their name, um, and uh, I choose not to. Um, but that was what it came down to. Do you have a reverend in front of your name? Are you kind of connected to people that we can trust? So these ideas kind of uh, persist. So those are three wrong ideas. Now, all of that is to help us to appreciate the right idea. So I've talked quite a lot about medieval uh, Catholicism, and that's because all of this was leading up to the Reformation. And our friend Martin Luther, who came along and looked at this, and what did he say? He said, well, let's actually see what the Bible says. What was the big realization that blew all this uh, apart? Well, they could see that God is invisible, that he's not part of this creation. They believed in the line diagram, even though I've never seen that phrase in Luther's writing, but they believed in it. The big division in reality is not between earthly and spiritual, but between God and his creation. So the question still persists, how do you relate to God? In medieval Catholicism, you had to do something special. I think I mentioned at NYC the letter that Anselm wrote to a friend congratulating him that his three small children and wife had all perished of a plague. Congratulations that your whole family has died because now you can join a monastery, which means now you're going to be saved and a bit closer up the chain. What then was the realization uh, that this wasn't true? Well, Luther said, in a, in a word, the word. How does God re interact with the physical universe? 
How does he relate to us? How does he cross the line through the word? Not through the sacraments. Not through physical signs. Not through hierarchy. But through the word. God relates to us directly and personally through his word. As we saw in Genesis 15 and Romans 10. Now, this might just be totally obvious to us and very, very familiar. But in the light of those three kind of different ways of looking, I want us to kind of feel the, the shock and the radical nature of it. It's very important that we feel that. God is personal. He's a person. He's not a force. To speak of grace, which was a word that the medieval church used a lot, is not to speak of some kind of force or substance. It is to speak of the character of God. How does God communicate his grace to us? He does it personally. How do persons relate through words, just as I'm doing now? Now, this was the big earth-shaking discovery of the Reformation, or rediscovery. It was bigger than the discovery that the earth was round, bigger than the discovery of gravity, bigger than any discovery you can imagine, in fact. It was earth-shattering. Because it led the reformers to say, all of that way of thinking about the universe that I've just been talking about, that God is up there and we are down here, that we need some kind of ladder to get up to God, that we need some kind of bridge, that we have to do all these kind of funny things with priests and Mary and saints and bones and buildings and sacraments. All of that, all at once, with one single insight, was blown away because God relates to us through his word. Can you see how that changes everything? To take one example, two examples, either everything is now a sacrament or nothing is a sacrament. Now, you're fine to come up and ask me about that a little bit uh, over dinner because Luther did have a view of the sacraments, which is a bit complicated, but that's where it kind of led to. That's the trajectory. Either everything is a sacrament or nothing is a sacrament. Either everything is sacred or nothing is sacred. Second example, either everybody's a priest or nobody's priest. And the referee said, no, all Christians are priests. We all relate to God directly without need for the chain, Mary, saints, holy people, all of that religion blown out of the water. And so you come into a building like this, and yes, it's a little bit old, it's a little bit of its time, but actually the architecture of this building expresses the theology of the people who built it. Because you don't walk in and walk into this kind of holy place that is cross-shaped and has a place for doing communion. It's a preaching center. The main thing is the pulpit and there's an organ that helps us sing. It's all about the word. So now then, we can apply this to what happens in church. Remember that the basic idea of how you relate to God is going to be the thing that you build your doctrine of church on. So let's come back to this question then, what happens in church? And I just want to say two things, uh, which uh, we'll, we'll see very briefly and we can build on in future weeks. Firstly, the word builds the church outwards. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Or look at 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 23 to 25. 
It comes as part of a longish argument about the merits of prophecy over tongues, where prophecy basically means the word of God clearly spoken by every member of the church. And look at Paul's expectation here. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, that is speaking intelligible words to each other, he will be convinced by all that he's a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Paul expects that outsiders will be in church as the norm. And he expects that what is going to characterize the church meeting is going to be so clear and intelligible that the outsider, the non-Christian, the unbeliever will be converted. And interestingly, this is the only time in the New Testament where the word worship is used in the context of church meeting, the only time I can think of, and it's someone becoming a Christian. He becomes a worshiper because he's heard the truth. And this is important because it reminds us that the church is meant to be the place you go to hear the gospel. The mission, as we've said a few times already in this series, is not something that just happens out there, outside church. Acts 2, God is adding to their number those who are being saved. This is a missionary community. The gospel is in the message that we declare and the relationships we have and even in our conversations. God has so made it that the key to the growth of the gospel in the world is the local church. And therefore, our meeting together should not be a stumbling block to the outsider, but it should be part of our evangelism. There are lots of implications of this, but three very quickly. It means those who lead and preach and teach and are involved in church meetings need to consider the outsider. We need to think about making them welcome, making things clear from the website to the welcome team to the signs on the door, the leading, the music and preaching. Secondly, as we've said before, inviting people to church is a great evangelistic strategy. Any Sunday, any time, should be a great place for the non-believer to come to church, hear the gospel, and see it enacted. And then thirdly, notice Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians 14, that everybody is speaking the word to each other. There is a gospel dynamic to this church that people will just kind of hear, hear and, and catch hold of. Uh, as they come in, building the church up outwards. Secondly, the word is going to build the church upwards as well, upwards in maturity. If you can turn to Ephesians 4, that would be great. And um, we'll have a quick look at a few verses there. Because there is a building that the word does that is conversion, but that building work doesn't stop, it continues as the word does its work. And here is the building work that everybody's involved in. Ephesians 4. I don't know if this is a familiar passage. I, I come to it quite a lot. I, I find that it's an um, uh, incredibly important passage. It's been very influential on my thinking, um, and hopefully it's sort of in the, in the DNA of our church. But let's have a look at it again. Ephesians 4.11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, 
attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's not the pastors and teachers who do the works of ministry. Their job is to equip others so that everybody will do it, which means, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, so that we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every sporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So if you've ever found yourself thinking, I don't have a role in this church, I don't know what my role is, um, I'm not technically operated, I can't operate the PA desk, I'm no good with children, I can't play a musical instrument, what am I to do? What is my role here? Well, have a look at verse 16. Each part is to build itself up in love. In a gospel-centered church, everybody is equipped, every member, to speak the word, to build each other up by teaching and encouragement and acts of service. And of course, this will affect our attitude when we come to church. When I come to church, what am I thinking of? Yes, I want to consume. I want to absorb the teaching. But I mustn't come as a consumer. I must come as a servant, as a builder, thinking, how can I build someone else up? Um, Emma said uh, to someone this morning, she prays about who she's going to sit next to. Um, because we talked about that startup, I think. Who are you going to sit next to in church? How to walk into church? You sort of, why not pray about sitting next to somebody? Um, not somebody that you just will really like having a chat with, um, or somebody who doesn't smell, or someone who's not awkward, or something like that. Um, but who can you build up? I presume you weren't praying those things. Uh, who can you build up in Christ? And she told her. The, the, the thing is, that conversation... Um, that you have with that person that you've prayed about. Well, it might not be life-changing and ground-shifting, but that's your ministry. That's, that's the role that God has given you to play in the building of your church, uh, of the church. And um, uh, you can't do that if you're in a sort of Hillsong type, uh, if, if your theology is Hillsong sacramentalism. That's what I'm trying to say. Because what that is all about is you getting an experience of the music and the, um, the, the, the vibe and that kind of thing. Now, the whole focus of church is, is, is building, and we do that through, uh, through the word. And that means that everybody is involved. Let's conclude then. Um, church is more brilliant, uh, but also more demanding than those medieval examples I gave. See, if you belong to a church like that, if, if that is your doctrine of church, either the sort of Hillsong sacramentalism or the medieval kind of sacramentalism, church is actually really quite easy because you just have to go and you get a bit of Latin or a bit of holy water or a bit of bread or, in the modern version, you get the smoke and mirrors and all the rest of it. It's quite an easy church to belong to because you know that there is somebody somewhere taking care of things. Um, take, for example, if there's a, a, a kind of a difficult uh, passage in the Bible that we, we don't quite understand, we have to really grapple with. Um, you know, something like the passage in, in 1 Timothy 2 that we've been thinking of, or something like, you know, should you baptize babies or should you not baptize babies? Those kind of things that people grapple with. Wouldn't it be lovely to have a pope... <laughs> Do you know how easy it would be just to have a Pope? Because the Pope decides these things. You don't have to have any conversations. You don't have to grapple. The Pope 
is the sort of final authority, and you just go to him and say, "What do you think?" And he says, "Well, this is what this is this is what I think," and that's that's the end of the discussion. But in a New Testament church, actually, we don't have that kind of authority, so we have to do the work of of grappling together. The New Testament church, therefore, is demanding because it's through the ordinary things, listening, reading, speaking, studying God's word, that God's kingdom is advancing. You don't just go and absorb. You actually are a part of what God is doing. And that means it's, it's brilliant, but it's more demanding. So remember that passage in Matthew 16, where Peter gives, uh, Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom, and that is interpreted to mean he's given it to the Pope. Well, what this actually means, if we read it properly, is that Jesus has given the keys to the kingdom to us. That means that if God intends his kingdom to grow and intends the rest of the world to hear about the gospel, it's got to happen uh, through you and I. God intends us to help each other, to grow into maturity. And that means that actually what you say to the person you're sitting next to on a Sunday morning is more important than what the Pope in Rome says to the whole Roman Catholic Church. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ who has come and lived and died so that we can be your people and brought into your kingdom. And thank you that all this happens as we hear and believe your word. Thank you that your church is precious in your sight. It is valuable. It is necessary. And we pray that you'd help us to love your church, to serve it as we build it together and proclaim your name to the world. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. We're going to sing. And uh, this song is going to remind us of the, the power of that word.